Acts chapter 2. And uh, we want to continue our series on the distinctives of Grace Bible Church. We've talked about the, the, the different distinctives. We've talked about biblical authority, and we've talked about the autonomy of the local church, and we've talked about the priesthood of believers, and we talked about individual soul liberty. Today we want to talk about the S, and that is we believe one of our distinctions is what separates us from other ministries many times is that we believe that our church membership is to be saved and baptized. We believed in saved, baptized church membership. Now the question is, where does that come from? Where in the Bible do we see that? And we want to begin reading Acts chapter 2. So let's all stand together and we'll be reading verses 41 through 47. Beginning in verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, Your sword that You give us, Father, that we grow from, that we are strengthened with, and Lord, that we're able to feed on. And Father, I pray today as we look at the distinctives of our church, Lord, that not only would we look at this as something we need to know as a ministry, but Lord, that we would look at this as something as individuals that we need to understand and that we need to apply and that we need to search our own hearts to make sure that, Father, we, we fit what Your Word says. Lord, we love You and we thank You that You love us. We thank You for Jesus who came and died for our sins and, Lord, has places us within His body. And I pray, Father, that in this study that You would just uh, encourage us and strengthen us and draw us close to You. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A local New Testament church is restricted to individuals who give a believable, a true testimony of faith in Jesus Christ and have publicly identified themselves with Him in believers' baptism. Now, as members of a local church, we are admonished to keep also the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is a unity. We begin with that understanding of the unity. In Ephesians, it says that we're, we are to be unified as a body. We keep this bond of peace. That's what brings us together. And what brings us together, too, is our conviction that God's Word gives us the gospel that God's Word tells us how we can have our sins forgiven, that God's Word shows us how we can be saved. 
And it's God's Word that also tells us that we are to identify with Christ by believer's baptism. And we see it in this passage that it says, those who gladly received His Word were baptized. And it says, and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Added to what? Added to who? Added to the church. You say, well, I don't think a person has to be baptized to be a part of the church. Well, there's two senses in which the church is used. And I know I, I give much emphasis on the local body because the Bible does. But there is a sense in which we as believers are part of a family, a uh, uh, group of believers who've trusted Christ and we're unified by the Holy Spirit. And it's the baptism of the Spirit that brings us together in that unity. Now, that will not qualify truly as a church until we're in heaven someday, because you can't have an unassembled assembly. So someday we will be in heaven and we'll be assembled together. In the meanwhile, the word church means an assembly. And so we see that, that spiritually the Holy Spirit brings us together. But as a local body, we're to be baptized in water to demonstrate our identity in Christ, our oneness with Christ. The, the, the picture is the person who's died to himself but resurrected in Christ. And it's something that, without doubt, God commanded us to do. And so for us to come together as believers, we unify in our obedience. And that is, if God has commanded us to do it, we gladly do it. If God said that you need to, uh, you know, jump a, a, you know, do a hula hoop four times, uh, then we would do it, or we would try to do it. And I unfortunately could not even be a member of that church. But, uh, but that's not what the Lord asked us to do. That's not what He called us to do. That's not what He commanded us to do. He commanded us to show forth outwardly what has already happened inwardly. Baptism does not save us. Baptism does not wash away sin. What it does is it demonstrates, it manifests that person who has given their heart and life to Jesus. And so we see that this is what a church is to be. This is what our distinction is. There are those that would believe that as long as you grew up in this church and uh, you, you've been here all these years, you're a member of this body. Or all you have to do is show up three Sundays in a row and you're a member of this body. Uh, some people would just say that they, they keep the membership very loose. We have to go by what the Bible says, just like with all these distinctions. These are not distinctions that, that our, our, our daddies come up with or our grandfathers came up with or our forefathers in the faith came up with. This is something that the Bible teaches and we believe. That's why we start with biblical authority. God said it, that settles it. It used to be God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. That still settles the matter, truly, if God said it. And so we've talked about the different distinctions. Today, we want to make a distinction about this church, to be a member of this body. And to be a member of this body, the first thing is that we are truly saved. That there are truly saved members. Now we see it here in Acts 2.41 that those who gladly received His Word that day... 3,000 souls were added to them. We know that by trusting Christ, by following the Word, by being obedient to the faith, that we're to be saved. The first step 
is that you're regenerated, that you're made alive, that you're born again, that you're saved, that you're saved. Now, I want you to look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in verse 12. Jesus, again, speaking of the idea of receiving, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord. In verse 12 of John chapter 1, But as many as received Him, to them, those that received Him, to them He gave the right, the authority, the power, to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. Now John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are to be saved. Trust Christ. Receive Him. Believe in Him. To not just become a member of the body, but so that we can have be a member of His family. Now, I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Now, this is the motto of our church. And, of course, you will know very quickly that this is the motto as soon as we begin to read this. Uh, and you'll see why. And that's because we are saved by God's grace. But God's grace is given to us when we believe, when we trust in God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now there are those that would believe that you can't believe. You can't believe. Because of your sin, because of your depravity, because of your evilness that you have brought in this world, because of your name, that you are not capable of believing. I would say this, on your own, you are not. But the Holy Spirit is able to help us to understand. Christ gives us the understanding, the light, to be able to see what the gospel is, and then to be able to accept by faith the faith and the opportunity that He gives us accept the truth of the gospel. And some would believe that that then means that we, if we can believe on our own, then that is a work. Well, I would say to you that if it still wasn't our uh, belief wasn't our ability, it's still a work. Except that it says here in verse 9 that it is not a work. Faith is not a work. He says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. So what that tells us is that faith is not a work. It's very simply a response to a gift given. If I had a check here for $10,000, and I said, Christopher, it's yours. And he came up and he took that check out of my hand. Would we then say, Christopher, what a wonderful man you are. What a fantastic man you are. What great integrity to take the $10,000 that was given to you. Now we'd probably say that's normal. That, that's, that's what we would all do. It's not a special gift. No, the credit is given to the giver. And when Christ offers us the gift of salvation, God offers us His gift of grace. And by faith, we accept it. We don't take any credit. All credit goes to God. Because He's the one that provided salvation. It's through Him that we understand the offer of salvation. 
And it's in, it's in Christ that we have new life. Truly saved by faith, by faith, trusting in Him. Now look in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. This is when I, when I lead someone to the Lord. By the way, I just got to say it, okay? Uh, Miss Kim, most of us know uh, Dorothy. This is a lady that uh, helps uh, care for Kim and does errands for her and uh, works, uh, comes over and does work for her. Um, they called me Friday to tell me that Dorothy accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. Kim has been building a bridge, trying to share the faith, did, and she accepted Christ. And so we're very excited about that. So I want you to be in prayer for Dorothy, that God would continue to work in her heart, help her to grow and be strengthened in that. And that's the, that's the ministry of the church. As we go out, the people that we have uh, a family influence in, that, that's in our family, our scope of people that we, have, uh, that, that we, that we deal with, that we work with, that, we, that are part of our family, that we're able to share the gospel with them. Romans chapter 10, look at verse 9. That if, that, if, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. So, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, I started to say when I went, I went in to talk about Dorothy getting saved, is that this is the last verse when I do the Romans Road, when I share the Romans Road, this is the last verse I share with them. Once they understand that they are born a sinner. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're conceived a sinner. And that when they're born, then they begin to live out that sin nature. And every single one of us is a sinner. That's why when people say, I don't want to go to that church, I'd feel so bad being there because I'm a sinner. We, we, we would have definitely a place for them. Because every single one of us is a sinner. The Bible is very clear about that. It also tells us that the reason that is is because Adam sinned and disobeyed in the garden, and as a result of that, all of Adam's offspring are sinners. Now, there are two theological views of that. One is called the federal head. Okay, <clears throat> And, and I, you learn these, write these down, because these will really impress other people, I promise you. And that's what it's all about, right? You know? <clears throat> but the federal head is the idea that, that, that Adam represents all of us. So that when he sinned in the garden, we fell when he fell. The other view is called the seminal view. And that is that because Adam sinned, that that sin passes on to each and every offspring. Which is true? Both of them. The Bible teaches both. We know in Romans chapter 5 that for as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin so that death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We, are, we do have this old Adamic nature that is given to us when, we get, when we're born. But also, when, when, when Adam sinned in the garden, when he fell, all mankind went with him. And so what we want to understand is the need to be saved. Everyone needs to be saved. I don't want to blow your mind, but nobody's going to go to heaven unless they accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only way. Jesus Himself said in John 14, 6, He goes, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father except through Me. There's only one way that you can go to heaven. There's only one way that you can have sins forgiven, and that's that you've accepted by faith 
the gift of salvation. That Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you accept His offering, His sacrifice for your sins. And so what we have to understand is that each person that's a member of this body has come to that understanding, and that is to be saved, that we need to be saved. Now the church services are inclusive. We invite anybody and everybody to hear the gospel. You don't have to be saved to be here this morning. You don't have to be saved to be here any of our services. It helps, but you don't have to be. Because our desire is that you would hear the gospel and that it would lead you to salvation. But we're not talking about church attendance. We're talking about church membership. And to become a member of the body, to become part of the Grace Bible family, first place is you have to be saved. Trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then secondly, that salvation experience is to be manifested, demonstrated, expressed, by being scripturally baptized. Scripturally baptized. The word baptized, baptism, is the word, the Greek word baptizo. And it was transliterated rather than translated. It's transliterated to baptism so that anybody reading that word could basically interpret that word any way they want to. And that's not a good reason. If you go to the Greek and you define and translate that word, then what you're going to translate is the word immerse, to immerse. So baptism is not a mode that we made up. No, sprinkling and pouring and these other methods were those that people made up. Those are the, that they decided, let's do something different. But the very word baptism is the word immersed. That's why in our church covenant, we change the word from being baptized to being immersed. Because that's what it is. The word is, that's what it means. And if you change the word, then, then, then the Great Commission would be go and preach the gospel to every creature, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So with that, with that understanding... We practice baptism the way that we do. I thought it was interesting, uh, in a ministry in the past, somebody came up and they, they came to see our church and they saw this place in the back. They said, what, what, is, what is that for? And I said, well, they have like these wires on me. And whenever the service starts, I float up in the sky, up and over that, and I land at the pulpit. It's an amazing thing. Really? No, not really. It's where we baptize people. It's where we immerse people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, what we're doing is that person that is submitting to baptism is giving a picture of the faith that they have in Christ. Again, we look at uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That's a, big, that's a big baptistry. Well, it wasn't a baptistry they got baptized in. But in that day, 3,000 people who trusted, who received the Word, received Christ as their Savior, submitted to baptism. Why? Why? Because that was the will of God. That was what was given to us in the Great Commission. And 
it symbolizes some very important things. Look in Romans 6. Flip back to Romans chapter 6. And I want to show you some of the things that baptism symbolizes. Look at verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. That's talking about spiritual life. What we symbolize in the baptismal uh, service, in the observance of our baptism, is the idea, we're going to go into more detail, we talk about the two ordinances, but one, let me just suffice it to say this, that what we are demonstrating is newness of life. We were dead in the trespasses and sin, and it's through Christ that we are made alive. Now, understanding that really brings a lot more understanding, a lot more wisdom to the world we live in. Why are things the way they are? Why are things so messed up? Why do people think the way they do? Why don't more people want to come to church? Why don't people accept Christ as Savior? Why wouldn't they want forgiveness for their sins? It's because they're lost. And, and, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says that we are, the gospel is hidden to those who are lost. It's veiled. Their eyes are covered. They can't see it. They can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them. They're living their old natures. And anything good that comes out of a lost person is because of the benefit that they feel that it will give to them. That if I do this good work, people will give me accolades. If I do this good thing, people will pat me on the back. If I do this good thing, then I'll be a good person. And so I want to do these, these things. Rather than the born-again Christian who says... I do this to please God. I do this to honor my Lord. I do this because the Holy Spirit is producing this fruit in my life. And I want to do what is right. So baptism shows, again, that newness of life. It shows, again, the fact that we were dead and didn't understand these things. Now we understand these things. Now we get it. Now we walk in it. And, as we, and, that's, and that's what he says there, that we walk in newness of life. By now you know that the, we, we, the word walk is symbolic for living. The walk is our life in Christ. It's our discipleship ministry that Brother Mike teaches on Wednesday nights. The walk is the idea of a person living their life and growing in their understanding of who God is, to learn how to walk in Christ and to learn about Him. The next thing, we're to be truly saved members, scripturally baptized, then we're to be unified. We're to be unified. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, there is to be unity in the body. If we are to be the church that God would have us to be, that we're all saved, we've all trusted Christ, we have all been scripturally baptized, we've followed in the obedience of baptism, and we have demonstrated to the world that profession of faith that we've made, there should be unity in His body. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 3. Endeavoring... Now, matter of fact, let's, let's look at verse 1. Let's go to verse 1. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk or live worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with all long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's the idea of patience with each other. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to be unified. There should be, there should be no church that splits. There should be no church splits. I mean, I was, I, I remember when I grew up, I, I mean, church splits were so common that when we would leave, I would say, let's make like a church and split. No, no, no. No, we don't want that. No, matter of fact, if it's a true church, there's unity in it. I've heard churches that have split over, and you have to, churches that have split over the color of carpeting in the nursery, that have split over the color of, of uh, the, the seats in the sanctuary, the padding on the pews in the sanctuary, things that do not matter. I know of a church that they were so they were so set on a certain color in the sanctuary, and another group in the church was so set on another color that when they went with that color, that segment of the congregation left. And ten years later, they remodeled, and they went with the other color. That's unspiritual, fleshly, carnal, sinful. It's sin. The body of Christ is to be unified. That's why in verse 2, that unity comes from a heart that's lowly and gentle. It's the idea of humble. Humble. A lot of people think that humility means thinking of yourself, uh, thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less than thinking less of yourself. It's the idea that we put Christ first, but we're thankful for the person that He's made us to be, that He, through us, is able to minister to other people. And rather than looking at our strengths or our weaknesses, looking at our pain and our problems, what we do is magnify the name of Jesus. And one thing we can do as Christians, all of us, is we can share the gospel through our lives. We can help others to grow. Now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We see that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings us together. That's, that's the bond of peace, is the Holy Spirit within us. And each and every one of us have to be saved in order for us to have the presence of the Holy Spirit. And once we have the Holy Spirit, then He's able to work in our lives. Look at verse 12. For as the body, chapter 12, verse 12, 1 Corinthians, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many, are one body. So also is Christ. Christ is not divided amongst Himself. We, we do not have, and let me, just, let me just say this, a lot of people believe that God is confused. That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two totally different gods. Or at least there's a bed that He got off on the wrong side of in the Old Testament. And so he's full of wrath, and he's full of anger, and it's thus saith the Lord, and if you don't do it, you're going to be struck by lightning, or you're going to be cursed. <clears throat> My blessing will be removed from you. Where <clears throat> in the New Testament, we have God represented in the person of Jesus, you know, who was sweet and gentle and had kids sitting on his lap, and, you know, and all these kind of things. Where in the Bible do we have the promises that his mercy will last? forever. 
Is that in the Old Testament? Where do we have it in the Bible that call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not? It's in Jeremiah. It's in the Old Testament. Where do we have <clears throat> Jesus turning over the tables of the tax collector? In the New Testament. Where do we have the wrath of God being showed on the earth? Revelation in the New Testament. I don't think God's the one that's confused. I think the person who thinks God's confused is very confused, or they don't know our God. But our God is not divided. Christ is not divided. There is one way. One way of salvation. One road, one way, one truth, one life <clears throat> that comes through Christ. And, and because of that unity in Him, we have unity with each other. The basis of fellowship, which we'll get to here in just a second, the basis of our fellowship is with Christ. If we are in fellowship with Christ, then we have fellowship with each other. If we're out of fellowship with Christ, we're not going to be in fellowship with each other. We're to be one body in Christ. So truly saved members, scripturally baptized, unified, and then gifted. We're to be gifted. Here in 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. All right? <clears throat> but what he's saying there <clears throat> is that uh, there can be a lack of understanding about what our gift is. Not just simply what the gift is, but how to use our gift. Sometimes we confuse our gifts with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. And that's the fruit. The gift is different. It's a spiritually enabling, a spiritual enabling that God gives us to glorify God, to magnify Christ, and to fulfill the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so it's that particular gift that God gives us for His benefit. Look at verse 4, same chapter. <clears throat> there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit. In other words, the Spirit that gave you your gift is the same Spirit that gave me my gift. And there are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is in the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, it's interesting that in this passage of Scripture, we have two types of gifts. There are those that are revelatory gifts and those that are edifying gifts. The revelatory gifts are revelation gifts. They're sign gifts. They're the, they're the signs that are mentioned in Mark, that these signs would give credence to the gospel. If we're sharing the gospel with you and we don't have a Bible in order to show you that He's the way, the truth, and life, and that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and you don't have that, by what authority do you give the gospel? It was the spiritual gifts. Speaking in tongues. Laying hands to bring healing. Uh, raising people from the dead. Speaking new prophecy. Recently I had someone that had visited our church, and they asked me if... They, if we believed in healing or if we have people come forward in order to heal them. 
And I told them, we absolutely believe in healing. That's why we have a prayer list. If we didn't have a prayer, we wouldn't need a prayer list if we didn't believe in healing. But do we, but I told her, I said, we, we don't practice it like the apostles. They practiced it in what was suitable and fit for God at that time. What we practice is prayer. And even at times, we do lay hands on each other and pray that God would give strength. And, it, and it's, it's our, for our own focus and for our own understanding and attention given to what we're doing, that we don't take it flippantly. But it's not that by laying our hands on anyone that these are magic hands, that magic things happen. No, it's by God and His sovereignty that anything happens. And we believe in that, and we practice that, but not as the apostles practiced that. The revelatory gifts were the gifts that came in apostolic times. The apostles brought those forth. And they were used, again, to give credence and confirmation to the gospel. But the gifts of edification are given to us in the Bible and are practiced today in our church. As, as, as you guys came, uh, we did the growth, uh, the growth track, you went through and you did a spiritual gifts test. I think it was interesting. I had people come to me and say, I don't think I have any spiritual gifts. I tested low on all of them. Then I had some people say, I think I have all of them because I tested high on all of them. And I looked at that, and, every, and you know what? I have all of them, too, if I just circle yes on every one of them. But the truth is, those, those tests are only as accurate as honest as you are. And if you look at yourself a certain way, many times it can be manipulated that way. The idea is just simply to get an idea. It's just kind of a rule of thumb, so that we know basically what, if somebody understands what their gift is. But I would say this to you, and that's what he says here. We don't want you to be ignorant of your gift unlearned about your gift, not know what your gift is, and not know how to practice your gift. And we want you to do that. But in that, there are certain activities that are dictated. There may be those that have the gift of pastor-teacher, but you're not called to be a pastor-teacher. But with that gift of discernment and spiritual leadership and guidance and model and oversight... You can use that gift as an officer of the church or as a teacher in the, in the church or someone that helps to equip people in this church. You can still use that gift, though you may not use it in that particular position or activity. There are pastors that don't necessarily have the gift of pastor-teacher, but they have a gift of edification. They, they, they love to build people up, to encourage people. That's the exhortation. That's what they, they want to strengthen people. Uh, one of the most well-known pastors of, of, of the bygone days was W.A. Criswell. And uh, Dr. Criswell is, was the, one of the original pastor teachers, Bible teachers. He had a megachurch in Dallas, First Baptist of Dallas. Matter of fact, that church still has a program uh, on television. Uh, Robert Jeffress is the pastor now. But he would preach, and he was a scholar. He had a Ph.D., and his church grew by leaps and bounds, and they started other ministries, and they gave millions and, millions and millions of dollars over the years to missions. And they asked him what his spiritual gift was. And he said, mercy. I have the gift of mercy. Not a pastor-teacher, not edification, not giving, not even serving, but it was, it was the gift of mercy. It's the idea, he said, I feel 
what other people feel, so that when I study the Bible, I study it for the people who need answers. I study it for people who need counsel. I study it for people who need to grow, to be encouraged. So Dr. Criswell, as a great Bible teacher, his gift was in the area of mercy. There are other pastors that have gifts in edification and in in giving and in other things. And so the fact is, because a gift doesn't necessarily dictate the position or ministry that you have, but it does dictate the motivation you have, what motivates you. And every single one of us as a member of this church has been given this gift. That's the point of this passage. Each of us, by the same God, same Lord, same Spirit, have been given these gifts for the building of the body, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so we are gifted to benefit everyone else. That's what it says in the end of verse uh, verse 6. God who works all in all, but the manifestation of the Spirit, verse 7, is given to each one for the profit of all. It's the idea of blessing and encouraging others. Interesting that the revelatory gifts, the sign gifts, the revelation gifts, are said to edify yourself. But the gifts in the church were used to edify and build up the body. And that's what we want to do is to use our gifts to encourage one another. We are gifted. Let's use our gifts. Some people believe that it's, they get it confused not only with the fruit of the Spirit, but they confuse it with talents. That God gave me a gift. I can paint. I can draw. I can play the piano. I can, you know, you know play the sport. I can do all these things. And God may have, certainly He had given you that ability, that talent. But everybody can have a talent. You don't have to be saved to have a talent. But you have to be saved to have a spiritual gift. And sometimes we confuse the gifts and the talents. There's certain things I'm talented in one area that you are talent that you're not talented in, and things that you're talented in that I'm not. But they're all that but all of us have gifts. We all have those spiritual gifts. So we are to be saved, baptized, unified, gifted, and fellowshipping. Fellowshipping. Look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 14. We are to have fellowship one with another. It's the word koinonia. I know that sounds like a Hawaiian word. Sounds like it's a word from uh, rather from Greek. It sounds like uh, you know something you would uh, buy uh, uh, bread or something. A koinonia, you know. But it's it's the idea of two people who've had a common experience that come together in communion, in community, and that experience is the experience that we have with Christ. True fellowship, true intimate fellowship, can only be spiritual. Look at the, in, in chapter 6 here, look at verse 14. He says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now this verse 
shows some very, it's very straightforward. Those that don't have Christ are in darkness. Those that have Christ are in the light. And in the same way that you can't go in a dark room with light, you know, I, somebody told me that when you shut the refrigerator, it goes dark. I don't know if that's true, because every time I open it up, the light's on. And when I was a kid, I used to do that, and it stayed on. So I don't know. It's the idea that darkness and light do not coexist. No, I'm not that stupid. Well, maybe I am, but that's not what I, I, I know. But the idea that you go into a room and you show darkness. I, how many of you have ever been to Mammoth Cave? Okay, a lot of you have been to Mammoth Cave down in Kentucky. It's, it's one of those things that Kentucky has that, that people come and see. Uh, it's not the only thing, but, you know, it's something we go see. And I think it's the third largest cave in the world, I think, or, or at least in the United States. We would go down in there, and, you, and if you've been there, you know they take you way down into the cave and they turn all the lights out. That is a scary feeling. It's so dark you can feel it. It's thick. I mean, literally, I mean, it's pitch dark. And then what he does is he lights a match. And when he lights that match in this huge room, it gives light. Not a whole lot of light, but enough that you're like, light, I need that light. And then he begins to light a torch. And then he begins to light other torches. And then what happens is ultimately the whole room is lit. And you've got quite a bit of light in there. You don't have darkness and light at the same time. It's, that, that, that's that's the, the word picture that's given for Jesus. That he's the light. And that the darkness comprehended it not. And so as believers in Christ, we have this fellowship in the light. You and I fellowship because of Jesus. We're brought out of the kingdom of darkness, we're brought into the kingdom of light, and together we have fellowship. But our fellowship, 1 John chapter 1, is with Christ. That's where ultimately our fellowship is with. And when that fellowship is broken, then our fellowship with each other is broken. That's why when people sin, the, the last place they want to go is church. I don't want to go out. And what do they typically say? I don't want to go where those hypocrites are. Yeah. No, I'd rather stay home and be a hypocrite. That's what I want to do. You know, no, the idea is they, they do, the first place is they, they, they want to stay out of church, away from God's people, away from the teaching of the Word of God. They, they don't want that. That's because their fellowship with God is broken. Once that's broken, then their fellowship with other believers is broken. And that's what we have to understand, too is that for, our, for us to have fellowship with each other, we need to make sure that our fellowship is right with Christ. That's why we do ask for forgiveness. We are forgiven. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, every sin was forgiven. So the question then comes, why then do I ever have to ask God to forgive me? And we see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He's faithful and just. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we go to Him, we confess, and we, He will forgive us of that sin. That's speaking, it's in, the, it's in the context of fellowship, not relationship. If you've got your little note thing on the back of your bulletin, you might want to write these two words down, relationship and fellowship. Relationship is your 
uh, being born again. That is your position in Christ. Your fellowship is your practice in Christ. Position in Christ, practice in Christ. It's what we practice. It's what we, how we live. Fellowship is that we do what's right, live right, seek to live righteously, and the result of that is that we're in fellowship with Christ. Not an issue of relationship, but fellowship. Maybe many of us in this room, you might have relationship with somebody in your family, a brother, a sister, a cousin, aunt, uncle, maybe your mom or dad, maybe your own children. And there's a broken fellowship there, but the relationship is still there. The joke at our house is if I ever, if I ever uh, was ever uh, uh, denied by my parents or disowned by my dad, ha-ha, I look just like him. There's nothing he can do about it. But the fact is, is that's the relationship. I have his blood coursing through my veins. Same with my children. And it's in that relationship that is secure. It's that relationship that is solid. It's that relationship that cannot be changed. But the fellowship can be changed. And fellowship would be where two people are, have broken some sort of a walk together. No more in community together. No more uh, walking together in communion. And as a result of that, and I, and I understand, we, sometimes we use those interchangeably, relationship and fellowship. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to define the word fellowship by 1 John chapter 1. And it's in that that we have that common experience with Jesus. And I'm thinking just like you are, why is he talking about 1 John chapter 1 and we're not looking at 1 John chapter 1? Let's look at 1 John chapter 1. We'll show you the context. 1 John chapter 1. Begin reading in verse uh, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Also, may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have, that, that we have heard from Him and declared to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, then we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. In other words, the issue of sin is always going to be there. But the forgiveness is there. And when we walk in fellowship with Him, then we can be assured that we have fellowship with each other. So we're to be saved, baptized, we're to be unified, gifted, fellowshipping, and last, or last, two more things, real quickly. Orderly. We're to be orderly. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to hurry through this. Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to look at verse 15. Jesus is talking about order in the church. 
Not order in the court, but order in the church. And here's what he says, Matthew, 15, uh, Matthew 18, rather, in verse 15. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, then you've gained your brother. But if uh, he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Again, it's the idea that if there's sin or disorder in the church, that God has commissioned us and given us the responsibility to bring order back to the church by bringing a person back into fellowship with God. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. What if there is sin in the church? What if there is something that's ongoing in the church that has not been dealt with? 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, look at verse 6. He said, But we commanded you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. Look at verse 11. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not wor working at all, but are busybodies. They're not ministering. They're not doing anything in the church. But boy, they have a lot to say about it. Now those who are, uh, are such... We command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing well. So we, uh, oh, it goes on verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, do not have company with them, that they may be ashamed. Yet do not count them as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is, a, this is a case where when there is disorder in the church, order must be given to that church. Romans 16, 17, 18 also deals with this. And then we have disorder as a characteristic of an unbeliever in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 through 19. That there is disorder in that heart of that person. And though there are certain characteristics that the Bible says of an unbeliever in Proverbs chapter 6, one that doesn't follow God, and one of them is discord, disorder, to bring problems into the church. Now, I have seen in my experience that many of those people that bring disorder and disobedience and discord into the church don't realize what they're doing. They don't mean to make that big a deal about something, but the devil is able to take a little something and add somebody else's sin to it, and another little bit of sin, and pretty soon by the time it gets around, it is a disheartening, discouraging, and wicked thing that possibly comes from misunderstanding or a lie, an untruth in some way. What we want to do as a church is we need to keep order because we are the body of Christ. 
We represent Him to this world. And that's why there's times that as a church, we have to stand and make a stand. Not to hurt people. We want them to be counted as a brother, not an enemy. But if they will not hear it, then we are to count them as an unbeliever, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Saved, baptized, unified, gifted, fellowshipping, orderly, and last of all, discipling. Helping people not just come to a knowledge of who Christ is, not only to be saved, but learning to grow to be like Jesus. Matthew 28, 19, and, uh, 19 through 20. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, wanted us to do one thing. He commanded one thing of us when he left. Go build big churches that look really pretty. No, that's not what he said. Go out and start television ministries that are massive. No. Make sure that you get the Word of God on the radio throughout all. And none of those things are wrong. But what did he command? That we make disciples. That we make disciples. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. It says, that Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the, and the Lord added to their number, the church, their number day by day, those who were being saved. Every day, people were coming to know Jesus. Why? Because those that were getting saved were fulfilling the Great Commission. Being a church member is a serious thing. It's a very profound thing. But it is a necessary thing for you to grow. It's very much like being a part of a family. What kind of person, what, what is a person experience in their life who's never been a part of a family? It's kind of sad, isn't it? The experiences that they miss out on, the, the things that are necessary for their growth. It's even more sad sadder, I don't know, whatever the word is, for a person who has come to the knowledge of Christ who does not grow with the people of God. They stay out of the family. They, they maybe drop in and find out what's going on. It's like a, that person that drops in and has a, a meal with the family. Hey, they're, they're great company, but they're not part of the family. Every believer should be a member of the church. Now, I would say I believe every member ought to be a believer of this church. The fact of the matter is that all of us know that the church was God's idea, not our idea. It's what Christ paid for with the shedding of His blood, His church. And what we need to realize, what we need to understand, what we need to do is to be a part of this body, to take the steps necessary to become members, one of another. And I understand why some people don't. They've been, parts of, they've been a part of a ministry that has floundered or fallen or there's been some issues and some problems. And, and I understand that, and we could say that about a lot of places. You could probably say that about the place you work. But you still go to work every, every, every day. You could say that about our government. But we gladly give to our government every year, right? Not, maybe not the gladly part. As long as we're people... There's going to be problems. 
But when you have people that have His Word, that have His Spirit, that gather together in His name, together we can find strength over our problems, over our difficulties, that can help us to grow to be like Jesus. And we can touch the lives of those around us. And I would tell you that the problems that we have in this world can easily be solved if the church is the church. If we function the way God would have us to function, if we believe our distinctives, believe them with all of our heart and follow through on these things, we can influence this world. Even if it costs us our lives, we can make a difference. But it is necessary for our growth. It's necessary for your fellowship. It's necessary for your fulfilling God's purpose for your life, being the church. I know that I preach a lot about the church. I, I, I do. And I, I know Acts chapter 2 is our, is our fallback. We go to that a lot. And a lot of that is because the devil is very, very effective in uh, helping us to forget who we are in Christ. He's very effective in our short memories about what the church is and how we function. And going back to the Bible informs what we believe the church ought to be. And that's why we go back to it many times, to remember who we are, but whose we are, who we belong to. And as a member of this church and this body, we believe in a saved, baptized, unified, gifted, fellowshipping, orderly, discipling Church of Jesus Christ. And that's what Grace Bible Church is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth that You give us today. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus, who died for us, shed His blood for us, enabled us, Father, to become members of this body. Father, not only is it an amazing thing to be saved, but Lord, to be a part of the people that represent You to this world. Lord, I just pray that as we give this invitation, that Lord, if there are those here who need to be saved, Lord, those that need to humble their hearts and their lives before You today, that, Father, You would have free reign through Your Spirit. Speak into our hearts Your Word. Lead us to accomplish what You would have us to accomplish today. And I pray that no one would leave here undone. Nobody would leave here without fulfilling what Your will for their life was for today. And, Father, I pray that everything we do would honor and glorify You and You alone. In Jesus' name, amen.